Let us pray. Loving God, may the words that flow from my mouth be inspired by your Holy Spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are making our way through the season of Lent, guided by the Gospel of John. John doesn't seem so concerned with balancing the timeline of his gospel by giving equal weight to the beginning, the middle, and the end. Unlike the Gospel of Luke, which Luke says right at the beginning that he's putting together an orderly account, John's main point is that he really wants us to understand that Jesus is God. And for John, that is most fully revealed in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So it's not so surprising that a large part of the words in John's gospel are focused on the end of Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, in the next four chapters, the gospel of John takes us nowhere. We stay in the exact same space that we begin with in chapter 13 that we read a section of this morning. What is about to follow is the final teaching of Jesus before he's handed over, arrested, and ultimately crucified. And it is spiritual gold. I I want to encourage you over the next few Sundays to make sure that you get a chance, if you're not uh, able to log on at the time of the service or be physically in the service to to listen to the sermons uh, in the coming few weeks, to to read the chapters in John's Gospel, to do uh, the reflections each day, particularly on these chapters, because no one should miss what these next chapters have to offer, except one person does actually miss all of it. His name is Judas. I can only remember hearing one sermon on Judas ever. It was back when I was in theological college and a guest preacher came along and that she had just read a book um, that was sort of a, a fictional account of the life of Jesus through the eyes of Judas. I don't remember anything other than that I'm sure it was a a fine sermon. Um, I didn't feel like I needed to rush out and buy the book after it. But that's the only one that I remember ever hearing. This particular section that Bruno read for us is actually jumped over during the Maundy Thursday, the Thursday before Easter. It's a traditional uh, chapter that we would read on the Thursday before Easter. But we don't get this bit. We jump over it. And all good Anglicans have got a little book that we pick our weekly uh, readings from. I'm not a good Anglican, so we're not following that during Lent. Um, But if you follow the three-year cycle of Bible readings, um, we never get this passage on a Sunday. And, And so we rarely hear about this encounter with Jesus and Judas and the whole betrayal stuff. And so I became a little intrigued with this section that nobody ever seems to want to preach on. So I bravely, well, actually, in hindsight, quite foolishly, uh, dove into the depths of this passage. My goodness. It has revealed some big questions 
for me. And I completely understand why people are reluctant to choose this passage as a sermon text. We don't know much about Judas. In fact, he's only mentioned three times in both Matthew and Mark's gospel. In Luke's gospel, we only get four mentions. And John, who elaborates the most about Judas, still only has him in five sections of his gospel. Judas almost seems like the mysterious villain lurking in the background and then all of a sudden is overcome by the darkest and most evilest of forces and acts to betray Jesus. Not just Jesus who is a friend, but Jesus who John is showing us is God. We've all been on the wrong end of betrayal. Betrayal hurts. It wounds, it scars, and it often shapes our attitudes and behaviours for years. What I think we're not very good at, however, is thinking of ourselves as the perpetrators of betrayal. It's easier to look for somebody else to blame, or maybe even account our behaviour for an evil force that um, has overcome us which often is an excuse for our, what is essentially personal, self-created and initiated bad behaviour. But at least we can reconcile ourselves with the fact that we are not as bad as Judas. We haven't betrayed God. Our betrayals are only minor in comparison to what Judas has done. And so it's much easier to leave Judas in the corner of the story embodying the mysterious villain who really has nothing to do with who we are, nothing to do with our faith or our journey. One of the most memorable messages I heard while I was at Theological College was from a priest who worked in prisons, a prisons chaplain. And he vulnerably said to us that it wasn't until he could identify the potential to murder in his own life that he could ever really begin to grasp how to effectively minister to those who are murderers in the prison. So I want us to adapt his words a little this morning. I wonder what the impact would be if we were to identify the potential to be Judas in ourselves. Too far? Maybe. Too hard? Probably. Judas was a one of a kind, possessed by Satan, and John spells it out clearly, the ultimate piece of work. Surely there was nobody else who could have betrayed like Judas betrayed. Well, I came across something as I was preparing to preach on this passage that didn't sit quite right with me, reading it with my 2021 lenses on. I started to ask myself, as I read through this passage, how could these disciples not immediately be aware that Judas 
was the bad guy betrayer. Let me just step you through the key points of this passage again. Jesus clearly says, very truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Everybody gets really uncomfortable and Peter plucks up the courage to get somebody else to ask. The person closest to Jesus at the time asks Jesus, Lord, who is it? Jesus is pretty clear. It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. He then dips the bread in the dish and gives it to Judas. And then Judas rushes off. And I ask myself, how are they not saying at that moment, oh, it's Judas. Instead, they're thinking, oh, he's off to go and buy supplies. Or maybe he's giving money to the poor. Or he's helping the poor. They don't get it. And we know throughout the Gospels that Jesus does have trouble getting his disciples to get it. Over and over again, they don't get it. But this seems pretty clear and pretty obvious. What are we missing? Well, I know you've been waiting for it, but our Greek word for the week is this one. Repeat after me, one, two, three. Paradidomai. It means betray. In the context in which that word paradidomai was used at the time of Jesus, it most fully means in our Greek and our English understanding to surrender, to give over, or give up. Surrender can be seen in such a positive sense in our Christian journey. There's been such great songs and hymns written over the years about surrendering all to Jesus. That is actually the goal of a life in relationship with Jesus, that sense of surrender. But as we reflect on the word paradidomai and the sense of betrayal and its sense of surrender, what we're talking about is surrendering ourselves to the things that are not of God. In Judas's case, he surrenders to Satan. He gives Jesus over to the world and the culture of the time. He gives up on Jesus. When we think of the word betrayal, we often use gravitas when we use that word. It's not just something we throw away lightly. You betrayed me. As, as a joke. When you say somebody's betrayed you, it's pretty serious stuff. When a spouse has been cheated on, when a secret has been exposed publicly, when serious trust has been broken. But when we think of betrayal as paradidomai, surrender to give over or to give up, then actually each time we prefer ourselves over someone else, each time we second-guess the motivations of others, we betray. We don't have to be possessed by Satan to betray. We just have to surrender to something that is not God. Quite often, we surrender to ourselves. 
We just have to give over or give up on the hope that we have in Christ. And this exposes all of us. When Jesus talks of judgment, he challenges that whenever we do or fail to do something for the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, or the imprisoned, we do or fail to do it for the king in the parable, for God. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it for one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. He goes on. Truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. In this sense, isn't all betrayal betraying God? I wonder if I'm getting your attention. Judas doesn't seem so far away in the corner now, does he? I really can't imagine how overwhelming it must have been for the disciples in that place on that night. What must have been racing through their minds as Jesus gets a bowl and a towel and begins to wash their feet. The creator of the universe humbling themselves in a profound act of intimacy, care and service. A demonstration of love like no other they had ever experienced. And in the passage before that we got to see the the cartoon of, Jesus washes all of their feet. Every disciple, even Judas. I'm absolutely sure by the way that John talks about Judas in his gospel that if Judas had have missed out, John would have let us know. He doesn't really like Judas. You can sort of pick that up as you read John's gospel. The one about to betray is equally shown this profound love. Peter articulates what I'm sure the other disciples are feeling. Jesus, we cannot live up to what you hope for us. We are not you. I don't know about you, but have you ever uttered that expression under your breath? I'm not Jesus. I can't do that. I can't be that. Yet Jesus confronts Peter in this response. Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus says... For you to join, for each of us to be part of the mission of Christ, the first step is to allow love and to be loved like we don't deserve. And it doesn't take long for Peter to show that he didn't deserve it. In the next moment, he's denying Jesus. I'm sure that these disciples are nowhere near grasping the enormity of this moment. Each of them would have had their own expectations of what Jesus is going to do. It's not written right here, 
But from what John has written about Thomas in other places in his gospel, I'm pretty sure Thomas is around that table thinking, yeah, I think Jesus is still going to overthrow the Romans and going to be the Messiah that I want him to be. But isn't imposing a human agenda on divine mission betrayal? Paradidomi, as we now see it? So I can now count at least three in that group of 12 who could have had rushing through their head that Jesus could be referring to them as the betrayer. Obviously Judas, but I'm also thinking it's swimming around in Peter and Thomas's head as well. Have I got it right? Is, is this really what I signed up for? But what about the rest? Did they just not notice that Judas had been past the bread? Did Jesus, as was the custom in, in a Jewish main meal, break the bread and recite the prayer, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has brought forth bread from the earth, and then pass the broken bread to every single person at the table? That's what they did as part of that cultural sense of family and community. It was a sign of care. Were the disciples so consumed like Thomas and Peter by their own potentiality for betrayal that they lost awareness of what was going on around them? There is a whole rabbit hole that I did dive down in, but I haven't got time to explore with, with you all today about the imagery of the Passover meal and what that could be saying about the Messiah and, and how that all plays out. We won't go there uh, this morning, but except to say one critical thing about the imagery of the Passover meal. The dipping of the bread and the passing it to another was actually a sign of showing preference and favour. It wasn't an act of naming and shaming. Quite the opposite. It was actually another sign of deep love. Unfortunately, John's not going to answer all of my wonderings and conjectures, but I just can't get past this glaring truth that in this encounter, betrayal is met with such deep love. First in the washing of the feet, and then in the passing of the bread. This is the origin story for Holy Communion. The meal that we're just about to remember later in the service. I've um, been around lots of different churches over the years, even though I've always only been an Anglican. I, I love to go and see how other churches do church. And I've seen enough Pentecostal altar calls to know that they usually can apply to every single person in the room. Because no one is ever perfectly right with God at every single moment of their life. But to think that we can just gloss over those moments of challenge and conviction because we don't need to be confronted with it, well, isn't that just delusional? 
Isn't that just betrayal in another way? So I don't want you to miss the opportunity that we have right now. And in the moments ahead, as we remember this meal and this moment again, we bring our potentiality for betrayal. And it is met with the radical love of God in Jesus Christ. Now, we can allow it just to become a ritualistic symbol. But what if we were just to reach out and say, I am open to receive this love and I am expecting it to continue to change and transform me despite my ongoing potentiality for betrayal. Yes, we could rush off and surrender again to the things of this world. But what if, like the other 11, we just stayed at the table, soaking in more of this radical love? How could that shape and change our behaviours and our attitudes. Even more, because Jesus is just about to share these words. In the next chapter, he says, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in fact, will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. What if? Loving God, you confront us with our brokenness and our potentiality for betrayal. In the moments that follow, as we stand before you right now, meet us as we are. But meet us with this radical love that we know we don't deserve. Help us not to sit in that fear and guilt identity, but to be transformed by your grace into an awareness that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. Even when we leave and forsake you, you are ready to welcome us back over and over and again. And as we approach a time of Holy Communion again on this Sunday, whether we're physically going to receive it or we're watching and, and worshipping from our homes, Remind us that we actually don't need a physical piece of bread. We just need to receive and to be expectant. Because what you know of us and hope for us is far greater than we can imagine for ourselves. Allow us to be humble before you. To imagine... What if you are actually going to continue your works 
in and through us, your church, your people, not just in the past, not just in the future, but now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you continue uh, to create that attitude of gratitude for what God has done for us as we sing together?